You're listening to Music Matters with Jason Tram. On this program, we feature interviews with distinguished members of the musical and performing arts community across multiple genres, from classical to contemporary, sacred to secular. We explore the most important issues affecting the arts today. Music Matters brings diverse innovators, ideas, and audiences together to create a broader musical community to inspire new solutions to unprecedented challenges. So today we've got a brilliant young violinist who is going to be one of the world's great violinists coming forward, and we're delighted he's joining us today. So um, this young man has won the Windsor Festival International String Competition, the youngest violinist ever to do so. He's been a concerto soloist with the Philharmonia Orchestra, the Orchestra Nationale de France, the Royal Northern Symphonia, um, a whole host of other ones. He's played um, in Argentina, Austria, Brazil, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Denmark, France, Colombia, Denmark, Italy, Switzerland, and the UK, and across the United States. A, um, a very busy recitalist and chamber musician, and um, and he also play. He's a, a junior at Ju- the Juilliard School, studying with Itzhak Perlman and Lee Lin. Uh, he performs on the famous Ames Totenberg Stradivari violin, which was made in Cremona in 1734. It is a w- pleasure to welcome Nathan Meltzer to the show. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. So Nathan, you've been playing the violin for, you've been in the public eye for a long time, even though you're a young person. Tell us about your growth as an artist and how did you start to play the violin? I started um, when I was eight years old, which is a, a little bit of a late start for, for instrumentalists. A lot of my friends started when, you know, like three or four. Um, but I started because my family at the time, because um, my parents had just retired, because um, 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 so when I was born um, in Seattle, a few years later, they were able to retire. Um, and what they tell me is that they wanted to give me and my brothers some culture. Um, and so they had never lived in Europe. And so kind of on a whim um, and out of curiosity, um, we moved to Vienna. And when I was living there, the school that I went to had a, had a program for, for a string orchestra um, for second graders. Um, so that and it was a it seemed to be a nice social circle to be in um, and you know, my dad um, when he was a kid for a month in high school um, so my parents were kind of pushing me um, to you know do something that had some family history to it but um, I for practical reasons of saving my young back um, from carrying a cello up one flight of stairs. Um, I just chose the lightest instrument, also on a, on a whim, really. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed playing the violin, and I took to it well, and I took some private lessons with an Irish fiddler who worked in conjunction with the school. Um, and, that, yeah, that's how I started, um, a series of nice coincidences. Um, and when I w- a couple of years later, Josh Bell came to play with the Fianna Fiddle, so I went to hear that concert, and I found that thought that was super super inspiring of course because um, he's you know he's amazing amazing violinist and um when my brothers graduated high school um we were trying to decide where to move back to in the states um we were we <laughs> looked up josh bell um and found that one of his early teachers was a, a great pedagogue named mimi's Vike who taught at iu so we reached out to her and sent her some videos of me playing and asked if she would be willing to be my teacher and she said yes so we moved to, to Bloomington um, where I stayed with her for for four years and then 
that's, you know, I went to the Proman Music Program, um, Mr. Proman's summer program, and that's where I met him. Um, and then the next year, I moved to New York to study with him at the Juilliard Pre-College. So what does studying with a great in the classical music community like Itzhak Proman, what does that do to a young artist? It's really, it's a really amazing experience, um, you know, because rhetoric you hear a lot in the music world is that you have teachers who are great teachers um, and you have teachers who are um, great at giving performance advice as well. And, and Mr. Perlman is definitely the best of both worlds there. He's been teaching for a long time and he had wonderful teachers, so he has a great um, philosophy of teaching. You know, he always talks about teaching like his teacher, um, Dorothy DeLay, which is very, you know, question-based and process-based, um, which is really wonderful, but he also has, you know, the 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 means to talk about you know the practicalities of performing and you know how to project in front of an orchestra and how to pace yourself and things like that. Um, so I get a, a lot of great information just from from his experience. Um, and you know if he says something and I struggle to do it, um, he also plays, which is always <laughs> the you know possibly the best part of these lessons is just him you know demonstrating things. Um, so it, there's there's a lot to to be gained from that as well, and of, of course he's just one of the nicest, most wholesome and um, humble people I've ever met, which is really amazing for someone of his you know caliber and fame and, and magnitude and everything. So I so I like to think that I've you know I've tried to absorb some of that personality as well, and that warmth and nice qualities. Well, that's it's so important to be humble as an artist because it's a very challenging field. It's a, we always push ourselves to the the possible the, the the limits to what we can do artistically and as a person. And it's um, it's great to see the people who have done it before and to take that advice and to to channel it into what you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've had also the for the same amount of time I was studying with Mr. Perlman, I've also had a great teacher in in Mr. Lee Lin. Um, who is an incredibly dedicated and focused and um, really just amazing teacher who's, you know, been like a, a second father figure to me um, for these last six years at this point. Um, in, the, in the transition year between um, when, I, um, when I was in Bloomington and when I was in New York, I, I commuted to see him. Um, he was in San Francisco at the time, so every month I would go and had six hours of lessons over the weekend and then fly back. Um, so he's he's also been just absolutely instrumental in in everything that you know is my playing currently. So I'm also just incredibly grateful to him. Um, in in a very in a he's a very different teacher than Mr. P, but they're both you know, completely completely wonderful. I've never heard anyone say Mr. P for me. That's wonderful, and uh, it's great to humanize <laughs> these amazing artists. I, I love I love it. That's fantastic. So tell me. Um, you, I, I was on your YouTube channel, and um, you were a very young man at the time. Um, I forget what the piece, but it was you had to be ten or something like that. So, someone who's been in the concert eye for so long, tell me what it's like to um, to, to grow to more challenging repertoire, to grow up in in music. What's it like? It's really interesting to see how you know approaches to performance for me have changed over the years. Um, you know, when you're younger, you have this certain um, fearlessness to the way that you perform. And I know I have some videos on, on YouTube um, from, I think it was the, the Halloween concert at, at the IU String Academy. So I'm, I'm dressed in, I have the face paint of a mime. 
and I'm playing the Eccles Sonata. <laughs> and um, there's another video when I did the, the, the rock and fiddle challenge and my, my brother did this interesting green screen and there's like the constellations behind me. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up with that, you know, <laughs> brashness and like real, um, yeah, fearlessness about, about performing, which is a, a really great place to, you know, to cultivate a love for performing and to learn how to, you know, use um, your your performance nerves in very specific ways. And I felt like I was, you know, I had some great resources when I was a kid to learn how to channel that. Um, so I've been able to, you know, keep that going for, you know, kind of the, I, most of the performances I still do, I try to maintain that that directed energy and, and focus, and I try to be as fearless as possible. Um, but, you know, and as you, as you get older and you're playing this great rep, um, you know, just, just learning Brahms concerto, and we were supposed to play together the Beethoven triple concerto earlier this year, and that unfortunately wasn't able to work out. But um, it's just, there's a, such an inspiration that comes from the works at this point. And like, you know, as I'm exploring B and what great pieces have been written, and now I'm getting into like chamber music and more contemporary music. Um, that's what I, you know, that's what, you know, gets propel propels me through performances now is just these, the emotional journeys of these wonderful pieces. And it's, well, it's, yeah, it's such yeah. a challenge. Um, yeah, I was really looking forward to that Beethoven triple because I've done almost, I've done all the Beethoven symphonies. I've done so much of the Beethoven's orchestral rep, but that's one that was on my list that I have not done. It was like, my, I love that piece. I've always mm -hmm. wanted to do it, and we had such a, a wonderful cast of, of players, including yourself, and um, hopefully we get to do mm -hmm. that again with the Adelphi Orchestra down the road because it's yes, in this Beethoven year, that would have been a nice, uh, nice um, cherry on top of that Beethoven cake. Yeah. It'll, it'll happen. We'll it, get we're, we're in a holding pattern for a bit, but uh, we will come out. We have our first question from the audience. Um, do you have a favorite right. concert? This is Eve from New York. Do you have a favorite concert piece to play and one that maybe you struggle with that you've had struggle with during your time as a performer? Mm. Currently, one of my favorite pieces to perform is the Frank Sonata. Um, and there's that old wives' tale about you know what the Frank Sonata re represents because you know it was written for um, for Eugenius I, the great violinist, allegedly for his for his wedding present. Um, and so people have have looked into the piece as people have have looked in as a microcosm of of the married life. And this first movement is this really poetic and dreamlike honeymoon phase, and then almost immediately it gets into this dark and tumultuous and stormy second movement. Um, and then the third movement, it's a, this recitativo and again, really dreamy. And then it's this really blissful and wonderful and essence of pure joy kind of last movement. Um, so regardless if Frank really meant that as, as a, the story of marriage or anything like that, it has a really wonderful arc, um, to perform over the, over the 30 minutes and to, to feel the journey from the first moment to the last moment is really, really special. Um, and I was able to play that uh, play that piece a, a fair amount last year, and it was you know, each time was a was a very different experience. Um, so that's that's one of my favorite pieces um, that I that I often concertize with. Um, also, just any Beethoven quartet, really. Those the last six quartets, 
Um, I've only had one, ex two experiences where I've played in one of the entire quartets in, in one sitting. Um, the first was, was Opus 132. Um, and I played it with my, my quartet in high school in a, in a small church um, in, in upstate New York. And, you know, just a place that sat 30, 40 people. And it was this small, intimate space. And that was really, that was an amazing experience because you have that. That that centerpiece third movement that's just, oh, it's just amazing. That that was a, that was another one of my favorite. I, th I think Beethoven, uh, after writing the Ninth Symphony, and then he retreated from public life and only wrote the string quartets and his late piano sonatas. He, in pure the yeah. purest version of of chamber music. After he had done music that the largest music that ever been written before, I think it's kind of amazing. And to do it in a church like that must have been really special. Yeah, it was really amazing. I did break about 20 bow hairs in that concert. <laughs> but, yeah, because that last movement gets really intense, but it was it was an amazing experience. Beethoven said this music, he, people would, they said this, a lot of this music is not written for this current age. He was onto something, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to misrepresent this, but I think there's the, um, is it a Stravinsky quote that's the... Um, the late quartets of Beethoven are the only pieces that will forever be contemporary. Um, Louis Spohr. Louis Spohr said that. Yeah. Very prophetic. It's definitely still true. Yeah. Very prophetic. So I have another question. We have um, another question from our audience. This is Jack from New Jersey. He asks, uh, you've performed in so many different places. What's it like to perform for different audiences in different countries? Uh, what do you find from the audience as you travel and concertize? I have... Everywhere I've gone, I've always had a... A, a very lovely audience. Sometimes you hear stories of of certain audiences will treat you with a little colder than others, and some will be kiss. But I've always, you know, had a lovely experience with audiences. Um, I, you know, I, I love playing in, in in big halls. Of course, you know, I've I you know played Paganini Concerto at the Berlin Philharmonic Hall a couple of years ago, and um, did a series of concerts. Um, I guess it was two years ago at this point in France with the Cacheterian Concerto. And the last one of those concerts was at the, the Philharmonia in France, in Paris. Um, so, of course, playing in those kind of halls and feeling just the, the you know, in the Philharmonia halls, there are the, the surround audiences where they're sitting all around you. And so that's a really, really interesting, um, you know, to feel the energy coming from all around you. But I also really love, you know, playing in, in, in rooms, really. Um, where you're, the the audience is is right in front of you, and you can really, in a, in a much more personal way, sense how they're how they're reacting to the music and how they're feeling. You know, like I was saying, Frank Sonata, you can really feel the way that the audience's mood changes throughout the piece. Um, so that's I that that's something I I always uh, is is going to those you know either in churches or I've, I've played a few concerts at in in Ischia. Um, a small of Naples in Italy, um, where where William Walton spent the last years of his life, and he has there's a a, a music festival that happens there, um, at the at the Walton Gardens, and that room is the room where he was you know composing the last years of his life, and it's very small and very intimate, and it's you know surrounded by three acres of beautiful garden. Um, there's something so special that, about that the ghosts explains. in those places that they they hold that music and uh, you get to just tap into that the ether. It's beautiful. It's very poetic. 
So yeah. tell me about what percentage really of your time is spent performing uh, concerto versus chamber music versus quartet. Give me an idea of your of your performing menu. Um, most chamber music stuff is is reserved for the for the summer. Um, my summer this summer is full. Well, Summer is no chamber music, but it was it was supposed to, I was supposed to start the the Proming Music Workshop, and then go to the um, Chamber Fest Cleveland, um, run by Frank and Diana Cohen, which is a really wonderful wonderful group of people. Um, and I was supposed to be at Toronto Festival right now, and then the Moritzburg Festival in Germany, run by Jan Vogler. Um, so I was, I was supposed to have a a nice summer lined up of chamber music stuff, and that's how the last couple summers have been. Um, over the years. It, over the the school year, that is, um, I, it's every couple of months I'll I'll go go on tour and, and play with a with a wonderful orchestra. But most of the time it's uh, doing recitals, um, like the thing in Italy. Um, I do a fair amount of things around New York and um, around the states, and so it's you know I would say about seventy percent recitals, thirty percent orchestra, orchestral gigs. Um, but those are always uh, orchestral concerts are are more draining for me. Um, I can I can you know I have a, a a nice time just playing recital after recital. But there's a, a a reverence that I have towards playing with orchestras that requires <laughs> that I space them out. Requires a, a lot of energy yeah. to get there and to do the entire concerto. And I, I'm as a conductor, I just love yeah. doing concerto work because it's you know I have to mm -hmm. listen to you and the orchestra and feel it's it's this combination. It's, it's so exciting for the audience to to feel the uh, the virtuoso doing their interpretation with the orchestra. And it's just it's such beautiful. Cha it's it's chamber music on the most massive scale. Yeah. Yeah. We have a question from Tobias and, from New York. Have you ever performed atonal music, and what is your attitude towards it? Atonal music. The atonal music that I'm most comfortable with is is Bartok. Um, I performed a fair amount of Bartok. I I really love his all of his works. Really, um, I connect most with his with his quartets because um, that's what I grew up with. Um, but you know, his his first Rhapsody is a really great piece. Um, and, you know, last year at Juilliard, we played Miraculous Mandarin with um, Barbara Hannigan conducting, and that was always a, you know, that was that was a real treat. Um, so, yeah, I really, I really love the music of Bartok. Um, my girlfriend is a composer, um, so I've recently, you know, in the last year and a half, been exposed to, you know, a whole nother realm of not just, you know, atonal music, but like, experimental music and music that really stretches the boundaries of, you know, of what it means to play an acoustic instrument. And so I'm, I'm getting really familiar with that and really interested in that kind of music as well. Um, I look forward to seeing where those experiments go because it's so interesting to take uh, virtuosos and to, to give you a, you know, a, a, something different completely. And it's going like, to look what Yo-Yo Ma has done in his career, how he's yeah. expanded the boundary of what's possible in his instrument. I think that's uh, something yeah, to think about definitely. as you develop into this uh, concert artist of the highest caliber mm. oh yeah no it and it's it's been a, a super a super great experiment we've been you know hannah and i have been collaborating on a on a handful of works in these last couple months um and we, so we've had a lot of conversations about you know combating my my general tendency to you know shape things in the way that you know, when you practice your etudes and play your concertos and sonatas, there's a general, you know, vernacular 
um, to standard repertoire classical music. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about altering that and like looking beyond that and like really, you know, experimenting with what it like what what it means to play something beautifully. Um, and so that's that's just been really interesting for me. Very challenging. It's always it's always great to work with composers because the if a piece is being written for you, you're the first to bring it to life. You can do things that you know we're not we're not bound by 150 or 200 years of, of performance practice. Mm -hmm. So you're really uh, unchained yeah. in that way in a way that's never been uh, done before. So that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, we have a question yeah. from the audience: Has your girlfriend ever written any music for you? Yes, she's. Um, so I think we're at piece number four at this point. Um, for four at this point. I've been here in Pittsburgh for, for four months at this point. Um, I was, <laughs> it was, I, I played Brahms Concerto in Charlotte um, during, during Juilliard's spring break. Um, and I was supposed to do um, the, the, the gala concert at the Longy School at, um, at one of their halls at Harvard. And that concert got canceled. And so I immediately, you know, texted Hannah that like, oh, I can come visit you in Pittsburgh for a few days before school starts. And I get here. And then the next day, Juilliard sends out the email that the rest of the semester was canceled and that we need to move out of the dorms. And yeah, so I've just been, um, you know, bunkering here um, since then, which has been really wonderful. And yeah, so we've had I, several instances at this point to, to write solo violin pieces, the first of which was a event that Jan Vogler organized back in March, his Music Never Sleeps 24-hour live stream. Um, that was the first um, first piece that Hannah had written for me. It was called A Falling Upon. And so I, I performed that for, for that event and for an event associated with the Windsor Festival a couple months later. Um, and then again for Jan's radio show, Never Sleeps, which was on W. And then after that, the, the next one we did was actually just a couple weeks ago. Um, one of my colleagues um, based in California um, is orga organized a concert series called Mosaics of the Bay, um, which is commissioning works, commissioning composers to write works that are based on art pieces that were submitted by contemporary artists and then getting, you know, soloist to, to play those pieces. And so Hannah wrote a piece on a wonderful painting um, titled Dorothy. Um, so yeah, that, that was a super interesting, interesting experience to write a piece that was based on another piece and try to bring all of those layers together. I love cross artistic um, pollination. That is great stuff and yeah. really interesting. How, did, how, how, how would yeah. you describe the style of the music? Was it uh, polytonal? Was it uh, tonal? Was it... Ooh, I'm not sure I could call it polytonal. Um, Hannah, Hannah generally doesn't, I don't want to speak for Hannah, but she is definitely always experiments with, with everything she can. Um, but she, you know, she loves thinking about different kinds of sound. And so there are, you know, aspects of the piece that, you know, depending on, um, uh, she tried to write it in a way that followed the way that you're, you're visually attracted to different parts of the painting. Um, which I think is a, a really brilliant way of thinking about it. So that the structure of the piece was based on which colors pop out at you first um, and going along that way. And so, you know, depending on the section of the of the painting, some pieces, some parts of it were, were very tonal and some parts of it were, um, you know, very open sonorities, a lot of fourths and fifths and open strings and harmonics. Um, and then parts of it were 
very much not tonal. Um, so it, yeah, that that piece really really was a wonderful. To be a composer today, you have to uh, you have to come to terms with the past, with the Stravinsky's and the Beethovens, of course, and then find your own voice. What a what a fascinating uh, collaboration between two people. Yeah, yeah, and it's always you know it's always great um, with that piece. We you know when we were first talking about what the painting meant to us, it was you know as we were making Shakshuka. Um, so it's just it it's been a really wonderful wonderful time being here. So tell me about, let's, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Tell me about your attitude towards practicing. How do you balance your life with practicing? Um, at Juilliard, um, where I am now, and I, it was different in high school because I, I went to a, a, a rather in, intense high school. And so sorry, a lot of, um, I didn't have much free time outside of, you know, going to school and then practicing and then, you know, doing all my physics homework and philosophy homework and, and whatnot. Um, um, but, but nowadays at school, I try to keep it to three to four hours of practice, which is, you know, when I was in high school, I did about six, which I can definitively say is, is too much practicing. Don't practice that much. Um, but now when I'm where you know, I'm surrounded by musicians and I'm constantly either in orchestra or in chamber music, um, I, I really try to balance out that kind of playing with, you know, with being in the lab and, and going over things. I think it's very important to have that balance and not to overwhelm yourself with just your technical practicing. Um, I, you know, have, have been learning to consider sight reading as a form of practicing, as a very valuable form of practicing. Um, and so I've, I, in the last couple of years, do a, a huge amount of that um, with, you know, a, a certain group of friends that we, you know, we love to, to you know, play quartets together. And, you know, Debbie's quartet is one of our favorites to read. And, of course, all the Beethovens. Borodin is a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, I, I, I try to have a nice balance of technical work and then more intense um, collaborative work and then, you know, fun collaborative work in, that, in those side reading sessions. Luis from New Jersey asked, do you have any funny stories in your practicing routines or anything that comes to mind as being a funny story? A funny story? Um. I'll give you one. Uh, While we were working, my cat jumped on the table and I tried to derail the entire podcast. <laughs> Five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, Hannah has a dog, has a wonderful 14-year-old cockapoo um, named Toby. And so I've had, to, <laughs> I've had to relocate where I practice um, several times because he gets very lonely. And so if, if Hannah is, is off doing something, I can't be upstairs practicing because he'll get sad. Um, so I have to go downstairs and practice with him um, so that, you know, he still, you know, knows that we're there for him. And so he'll, you know, be pawing at my leg. Um, and every time, you know, Earlier in the in in the quarantine session, I I decided to challenge myself and learn the last rose of summer, because um, it's some it's a piece that's way out of my comfort zone, and so I figured you know no one's going to hear me for a while. This is a good time to to learn this piece, and so I could tell that Toby was very upset when I was in the the early stages of practicing that because there are a lot of harmonics that weren't speaking, um, and so that was you know that was irritating him. Um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, Toby's a, a wonderful little That's puppy. That's a great story. Yeah. So tell me um, the instruments you've played in your journey. So tell me how, how does the, the changing of instruments affect the violinist and, um, and bring us current on the instrument you're playing now, which has got an incredible history, and I look forward to chatting about that with you. Yeah, so the, the violin I'm playing right now um, is the wonderful 734 Stradivarius, um, the Ames Totenberg Strad, um, which, as you said, has a, has a really incredible history. Um, it was, you know, played by the great violinist and pedagogue Roman Totenberg for for twenty some years, and after a recital and all laid at the Longy School in in Cambridge where he taught, um, one of his previous students, when uh, when Doc, Professor Totenberg was out, you know, schmoozing with with the audience members, snuck in the back hall and stole the instruments, and then disappeared for. For 30 years, um, and so after um, that student died, which was a year after uh, Professor Totenberg died, um, he told his then girlfriend on when he was on his deathbed that there's this super valuable instrument lying under a tarp in my basement. Um, go try to sell it and get some get some money. Um, and so she found it, and she didn't she didn't know what it was. She wasn't a musician, so she took it to to a luthier. Who called the FBI, um, and oh, it called Preet Braha actually, which is you know something I, I find fun. Um, and so yeah, the the violin was returned to to Totenberg, Professor Totenberg's three daughters, um, who you know gave it to a wonderful shop in New York called Rare Violins, um, run by um, uh, Stephen Bruno, um, Bruno Price and Zeev Razi. Um, and they, the violin was in in their custody for a couple of years, being restored because you know when you when you steal a strad, you can't exactly take it to a shop when you know a seam opens or something goes wrong, and so the violin was covered in just super glue um, from oh when the guy gosh. had to you know had to glue his own <laughs> seams. Um, yeah, so they had to take it apart and and clean all that off and repolish everything, and it was a a really tough job and they they did a wonderful job of it um yeah two years ago it was finally ready to be to be performed and they decided that rev islands decided that they were going to start their own that they were, um strat society like organization called in consortium um that lends out um fine violins to to performers um and so this violin was the first violin that came out in that in that foundation um, and I've been playing it for for a little under two years at this point, which is really hard to believe. Um, How does the instrument change your sound? Describe to people who may not be concert violinists. Describe what it's like to play an instrument like that. It has such a history and a Provence. And um, how does that affect your your playing? Specifically about this violin, um, this I've. I've never I've I've played on a few Del Jesus um, throughout my time for for specific concerts, um, but I've never had the opportunity to like really sit with a a great violin like this and 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 listen to it develop um, and listen to you know you know hear the difference between you know how it started and then as I get used to it and as it gets used to me um, you know hear that that's um, and specifically with this violin since it was um, out of commission for so long and then in separate pieces for so long, um, there's been a, a really tangible difference between 
you know, what it sounds like now and how it sounded when I first got it. And I, while it was still an, an amazing, beautiful sound when I got it, it's, you know, every, you know, every couple of months, something clicks with it and something else just opens up or something starts speaking or something gets this deeper resonance to it. Um, so on top of just my, me learning how to play it, um, and violin getting used to how I play it because when for, for these violins they really do change depending on who's playing them because they you know they they resonate in different ways and they get used to resonating that in certain ways so violins really normally change depends on who's playing them but with this one it's really really been altering really drastically um, which has been a, an absolute joy yeah it, I, I um, one of Professor Toto Berg's daughters lives in New York and so she goes to a lot of I invite her to every concert I do there and she she always comments not to put words in her mouth that every time she hears it the violin starts sounding better and more like what she remembers it sounding when she was a kid um, which is always just a, a wonderful compliment to, to hear it's um, an incredible story and an incredible to hear uh, that his daughter I mean it must have been devastating for, for Professor Turtenberg to, to lose that instrument which becomes a part of you that's like your yeah. partner for so many years it must have been devastating for him yeah the what he often said was that he, he equated it to losing an arm mm. um, and because he had he had been playing it for 20 years and I, I think what he said is that he was he finally understood it for the last seven years when he was playing it and so it took him 13 years to, to get used to it um, and then yeah that's it, it was must have been really really difficult but he sprung back and was you know, always the the nicest guy and a great person to be around, and so he 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 recovered nicely. And kudos to him for that. We have a question from Sylvia from New Jersey. What kind of strings do you currently use on the Strad, and what kind of bow are you using? So I use um, uh, Peter Enfelt's um, for the for the bottom three strings, and then a Yarger medium for the E string, um, which I think are are it's a really nice set of strings. Um, I try not to get too caught up in, in accessories um, when I'm playing. So I, this is actually the first set of strings that I tried on the instrument, and you know, and it sounded good. And, and you know, I you know at the shop decided you know this sounds good, and I decided it sounds good. But I haven't I haven't really experimented with with different strings. You hear that dominance sound great on old violins, but so I'll try that at some point. Um, but I think this is a really nice setup. Um, and the bow is actually also from, from Rare Violins. It was not custom made for me, but it was there made by their resident bow maker, Ron Forrester. Um, and so I was playing on a wonderful bow that was on loan to me from Juilliard, um, cause they have a fine instrument and bow collection. Um, but, but Bruno Price at the, at Rare Violins wanted to see what this violin sounded like on one of their bows. Um, because uh, Mr. Forrester is a really amazing bow maker who's really, you know, detail oriented in how, you know, how it feels for, you know, people of different arm lengths and he makes slightly different size bows and bow weights depending on, you know, the instrument and how big of a person you are. Um, and so they had something that they thought would really work for this instrument. And so it did. Um, so I'm, I'm still playing on, on that bow. It's, I'm the first person to ever play on it. It's two years old. So a modern um, bow and, a and, a, and an ancient violin making great music together. That's a, be <laughs> that's a really interesting, cool story. How yeah. much, uh, for people who may not know, how much uh, 
uh, maintenance does a does an ancient does a 1732 Stradivarius require? It depends on the violin. Um, I know that that Mr. Perlman um, famously only changes his strings like once a year, and you know occasionally will take the violin in just to see if anything has opened up, which it generally hasn't. Um, this violin, I I'm you know since it was it's new to the music scene again. Um, requires slightly more maintenance than usual, and as time passes, I definitely have to take care of it less and less. Um, but last year, uh, seems it open up, you know, about every five weeks, and you know now it's to the point where like every three months I'll take it in, um, as it as it you know gets used to used to to resonating again. Um, so it really depends on the instrument, and and this one is is settling into its. Into a routine. Now, who played it before? Um, to- Maestro Totenberg played it. Who played it before? Um, what's the? It's a, such a, a long hi- performing history. Was there a famous soloist before that as well? Actually, I'm actually not sure. Um, presumably, Ames <laughs> was a was a great performer if he you know if he got the instrument named after him. But I'm actually um, actually not sure who played it. Who played on the instrument before him? Huh. But. He was probably These great. instruments could talk. What, what an incredible lineage of people coming down from the 1700s all the way to today yeah. as you um, start taking the stage of these major venues to, with that incredible instrument. Hmm. So tell me what yeah. your life was, what was your life, a typical week in the life of Nathan Meltzer before COVID-19, and how has that shifted now? Well, a, a typical week was, um, you know, I'm, I'm still in school, and so it was a, a, that combination of, you know, a couple hours of classes in a day, and depending on the week, you know, a three-hour orchestra session or, you know, a certain amount of, of chamber music rehearsals. Um, I play in a quartet with, with three wonderful musicians who all have very intense performance schedules. Um, and so we we have a joke that you know our most of our rehearsals take like place in the hour before our coachings because you know one of us is gone at all times. Um, so I can't say I spend a lot of time in those rehearsals, but um, when they do happen, it's always a a real treat. Um, so yeah, I try to what we were talking about before that balance of of, of spending a fair amount of time practicing, spending time in lessons. Um, but most of my free time is 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 spent sight reading, um, and you know I I enjoy playing ultimate frisbee, and so sometimes you know my friends and I will go to Sheep's Meadow and and <laughs> play a game of pickup frisbee. Um, Fun. Yeah, um, it's a it's a low risk risk sport if you know how to catch anything, and you know. Brother was a baseball player, and so he got you know arm problems. Um, so yeah, none none of those strenuous sports, just just a piece of plastic. Um, yeah, so that was that was that would be that would be a general week. Um, and then yeah, a lot of sight reading, a lot of rehearsing. Nowadays, um, it's very different. Um, you know, Juilliard has, has recently announced their schedule. Um, it, it, it looks like a great plan. Um, classes are still going to be online for most of next semester. Um, but right now, a general a general work week is kind of just um, making some bagels, <laughs> practicing some etudes and some scales, 
Um, I'm actually, I'm currently in the early stages of putting together a concert series, an online concert series. Um, so I've been doing a lot of um, you know, admi administrative work for that, coming up with programs, writing emails, um, and reaching out to performers. That's yeah, a lot of a lot of meetings around that, which has been you know, very difficult, but of course very rewarding, and I'm you know, very coming up with. You learn so yeah. much by producing these new things, and you're gonna learn skills that you never knew. Things, and you're gonna learn the interesting thing about these times, is everyone's yeah. doing things differently. What we've done before in the past has had to change. So, um, and I'm finding such a on this show particularly, I found that a lot of my colleagues are doing such interesting things. Um, from mm. one opera singer who's formed her own opera company that's doing virtual concerts, for another one who's, you know, find humor and has become a YouTube sensation. Um, mm. The toilet paper diva, my friend Christina Major, who uh, puts on this headdress and get over a million views on, on Facebook Live. And wow. <laughs> great singer, but uh, finding humor. And, you know, it's just amazing what people mm. can come up with in this time as we are, are all forced into new times. So tell me about this concert series. What's, it, um, what's, the, what's the thrust of the music? and um, what are you working on? Yeah, so it, it's um, a couple of my colleagues at Juilliard, um, Devin Moore and Louis of Fantastic Violas and Cellists, respectively. Um, we're co-creating a, a collaboration with University, um, who's the founder of the Institute of Composer Diversity. Um, and so we're putting together a, um, a series of what we're calling asynchronous concerts um, of... of socially distant performed chamber music of of works of, of composers of unrep of underrepresented communities um and so you know we're reaching out to a bunch of contemporary composers um and you know getting all those you know sync licensing and trying to put together as many different um combinations of instrumentation as possible we're starting out with a, with a bunch of solo rep just cuz um, we don't want to overwhelm a post, our post-production department, but as we get into it, we're hoping to really, you know, get some, um, on top of just high-level performance, some really interesting visual um, ways of, of um, sharing this, this wonderful music that's not widely performed. Um, and I've had a, a really wonderful time. Um, um, for, you, for people who don't know, the Institute of Composer Diversity is a really wonderful platform. It's an online catalog um, that's incredibly easy to use, rich in detail um, of just every, you know, every composer that's of an underrepresented community. Um, and so I've I had a really wonderful time just like researching and, and in my efforts to try to put together pro learning a lot about these different composers and, and hearing their music. Um, um, yeah, I'm for those pieces into other projects that I'm doing. Um, I'm putting together a concert for the Toronto Music Festival right now. And so I'm going to be playing one of Jesse Montgomery's pieces for solo violin and, and which is a really wonderful piece. And I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of it a week ago and now it's, you know, it's, you know, I'm. It's been a really wonderful experience in learning that. That's so exciting um, to bring the, the works yeah. of uh, underrepresented composers forward. Uh, such an important in today's society as we uh, we bring new voices into classical music. I think it's really, really important what you're doing there, and that's exciting. How can people find out more mm -hmm. about that? 
We're we're still in the um in the very early stages of this. I wish we could I could say we you know give you a website to go look up. Um, that's currently what we're working on. Um, we finally <laughs> we finally came up with a name three hours ago. Um, after after you know ten days of going back and forth and trying to alter some words, um, we're, go we're going with Opus Illuminate um, because the main um, what we're trying to accomplish to this is really shine a light, illuminate works that you know generally aren't in the classical music canon um, right now, and to provide a, a an interesting platform for people to you know experience and experience these works because you, you know normal chamber music is not really something we can do right now um normal concerts are something we can really do right now so we're trying to you know in this platform of free asynchronous um concerts of social distant chamber music um it's just visually a very interesting thing to see chamber music that's just for people in different boxes um and i really enjoy looking at that i've enjoyed doing several of those projects in the last couple months and so i think it's just a very interesting platform for people to to witness this music so who goes um, so for, who we're, goes we're first to... who, who uh who puts down their track first that you perform with it's either a metronome depending on the piece um either a metronome or a one of the extremities the first violin or the or the cello um it's always nice I've enjoyed starting with the cello just because that's, you know, foundation. <laughs> it's the foundation and that's not as important when everything's digital, but it's, it's a, it's remnants of, you know, how our things tradition go and our history. In yeah. It's, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm buried in uh, doing a weekly virtual choir with uh, recordings with a very large choral community down here. Every week we're putting out 60, 70, 80 member recordings. And um, it's always the organ for us, but then I'm adding brass instruments. And it's just interesting mm -hmm. to, to add those complexities to asynchronous performance. And we have to, the editing process is so different than what a conductor normally would yeah. do. But it's, um, we keep communities. Uh, we keep communities engaged. We keep people excited about music, and it's very important work you're doing. It's very. I'm glad to hear that uh, you're doing such creative work, even in your time, as you're adapting to this yeah. new normal. Yeah, really. You know, trying to trying to do my best, and I th I think as artists, you know, we really have a, a singular um, ability to just import, like reflect the times that we're living in, um, and so you know, in in. In these projects that I was doing before, and you know, when I was trying to, I, I've been doing a few of these these asynchronous chamber music, social distancing before, um, and you know, as I was thinking about trying to, you know, which which rep should we do for our next project, I was thinking, you know, I, this is is really a time where people have gotten. This is a really great opportunity because it's a different way of consuming music to really change more things about the music experience um, as opposed to trying to, you know, trying to equate as much as possible. And though, even though people have been used to hearing Beethoven quartets live, let's try to just, let's try to do a asynchronous recording of a Beethoven quartet. Um, and while that was still, you know, really rewarding to me, I was, I was trying to find something that was, you know, that could be even more useful in a time like this and so hopefully this this project will will work out and and a resource to, to people so nathan yeah. how can people find out more about you I don't, well i have a website um nathanmeltzer.com 
Um, and so, yeah, there you can see several, you know, performance videos in my calendar and, you know, repertoire lists if you're <laughs> looking to see what I can play um, or have played. Um, yeah, and I have a, you know, as I've had, I have YouTube videos um, up dating back for, you know, basically as long as I've been playing. And so um, I, you know, have a, have a fun time watching the evolution of, of my social media content um, because I've, you know, had that YouTube channel for a while. And so, you know, one of my oldest videos is that, that video where I'm dressed as a mime. And, and, you know, one of my more recent videos is, you know, me playing on the Totenberg Strat. And so that's a, I, I like having that juxtaposition in there. You have a great personality, and um, it, it comes through in your music making. And um, I look forward mm. to, uh, to to watching you to grow, continue to grow, and to doing some great things in this music field. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you for joining Music Matters 2020. It was a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, be sure to hit subscribe on our YouTube channel and hit that bell for more information. Our next guest will be this Sunday at 2 o'clock p.m., at 2 o'clock start, because our guest is calling in from Vienna. This is Ray Chenet, the uh, acclaimed countertenor who's been taking Europe by storm, who's going to talk about uh, his life in COVID and uh, how he's moving forward. And um, you can also um, support us by joining our Patreon page at Patreon dot com slash mm2020 anyone who joins gets a t-shirt and thank you so much to people who are we sold our first 20 t-shirts very exciting and um, be sure to uh, keep involved with us and to reach out to us with any questions and remember keep music alive thank you <laughs>